Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. And once again, I'm joined by Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hello. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hello. What time is it for you right now? Uh, seven minutes past 8 p.m. All right. That's not, that's not too big a quote-unquote sacrifice to make for <laughs> the clarity that hopefully you'll add to everybody's thinking and also the fame and fortune you'll add to yourself by, uh, by participating. Okay, we got a bunch of, I've looked at the topics you guys sent in advance. There's a bunch of exciting new stuff. I thought I would just share a thought that I have had recently about energy issues in general, and it was particularly prompted by an experience I had yesterday. There's a professor named Joseph Dancy, whom I met several years ago when I was doing a speaking engagement in Dallas, Texas, and I spoke at SMU, Southern Methodist University. And I think I was there at the, um, in particular at the Perot Museum, which is a really, really impressive museum that was um, one of the main benefactors and, and initiators of it of it, or at least of its major um, upgrade, is a guy named Forrest Hoagland, who's a really, really cool guy. He's in his 80s and is just incredibly sharp guy, is, is a model of ambition and energy in just the, the physical sense for, for anyone. Anyway, I was, I was there giving an engagement. I met this guy, Joseph Dancy, and he was an impressive guy and knew a lot and was enthusiastic about my work. And recently, he told me that he was now at the University of Oklahoma and he had a really interesting, I believe it's a law school class and they didn't have any kind of budget, but he asked me would I do a remote presentation. So I decided to do a remote presentation because I I remember him fondly and it seemed like he was doing really good work. So we decided to do a Q&A type format. He ended up asking me a bunch of questions. And one of the things that one thing I was curious about what would happen is how would my answers to these questions differ from answers I might have given six months or a year ago, particularly in light of all the thinking I've been doing for the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0, which I'm still actively in the middle of. And it was interesting that there's one issue in particular that kept coming up, and I just thought I'd, I'd share it with you because it is it's it's for me one of the most fundamentally clarifying thoughts that I've ever had and it's it's not a new thought but it's a it's the thought that keeps on giving and the one way to put this thought is that nature does not give us the environment we need to flourish nature does not give us the environment we need to flourish a couple things about this idea one is that it's a it's a fundamental idea about how the world works. It's it's saying that, well, one thing is we want to flourish. That's that's a goal that we're paying attention to. So we want to succeed in life material and materially and mentally. Uh, but that that's not the default. It's not that Mother Nature is conspiring to help us. Now, obviously, nature has is the precondition of flourishing, and nature has amazing potential but that potential needs to be activated and actualized by something. And this, this view is very much in contrast to the normal way we're taught to think about environment, which is that nature gives us a perfect environment. One thing I've observed in talking about different issues, and in particular, I'm working on the environment sections of the moral case for fossil fuels, is whether you're talking about the issue of air quality or water quality or resource availability or even wildlife, people think of, they only think of industry as something that can negatively impact those. They treat them as, oh, well, air quality is perfect without humans. Water quality is perfect. Resources are abundant. Wildlife is perfect. And that informs a whole attitude toward industry, which is that industry can only do negative things environmentally. And it it cannot do positive things. The best it can do is to not have an impact. And that's that's the idea, although not the reality behind something like green energy. It's, it's allegedly natural. It somehow doesn't 
impact nature, which is an impossible thing if you're dealing with energy because energy is a transformative force. But the, the idea at least is, oh, you're minimizing your impact on environment. But the reason that's a plausible idea is because environment is perceived as perfect. But once we, from a human flourishing perspective, realize that environment is is deeply imperfect, that it does not satisfy the basic requirement of giving us what we need to flourish, then our attitude toward environmental issues changes because our, our focus then becomes what can we do to change the environment, to make it a place where we can flourish. And then you, you look at, say, water quality and you see, oh, well, yeah, water isn't nat the water isn't plentifully available and clean just by default. So then we need to intelligently transform nature to say purify water that isn't drinkable and then move water that's far away to a close location. So there's an enormous potential for environmental improvement or in the realm of climate. Nature doesn't give us, as I'll often say, a safe climate that we then make dangerous. It gives us a dangerous climate that we need to make safe. So then we need to think about, okay, how do we how do we master our climate? How do we take, how do we create a, a uh, human indoor climate that we can live in most of the time where we're insulated from the, the you know, temperature extremes that exist just about anywhere? That's, that's a huge kind of thing. How do we protect ourselves from the storms that exist just about anywhere? How do we, with water, I mentioned, how do we protect ourselves from drought, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We need to, all of these areas of life, we need to master or improve our environment. And we can really think of this as a perspective that involves everything in life, because in a sense, you can think of everything as it's you and then your environment. So even your perspective on energy, when people talk about the, um, when, when people, when I, I noticed when I was talking about energy, one of the fundamental points is that nature doesn't give us the energy resources that we need to flourish. It gives us the potential, it gives us raw energy, but then we need a process to transform that raw energy into cheap, plentiful, reliable, usable energy for all sorts of different applications. And, and because I have this perspective that nature doesn't give us the environment we need to flourish, I'm always looking, I'm always in my thinking, I'm always factoring in the need to do something positive to our environment to transform it. And then when I look at the different ways in which we transform our environment through industry, I'm looking not just for negatives, I'm looking overwhelmingly for positives. So for example, let's take something I've been thinking a lot about air quality recently. And air quality might be the thing where you think, oh, well, that's one where we only make it worse, but definitely not true. Think about the state of the air that nature gives us. Well, the, the default is actually that it's full of uh, biological pollution, which is the worst kind of pollution. Pollution as in as in just contaminants from a human perspective. You know, we have the pollution of um, you know diseases, airborne diseases that are passed on by our waste, by animal waste. Uh, that and so there's the perspective of these different, and it's not just like smoke, which can damage us in certain ways, but smoke isn't trying to hurt us. These biological organisms are actually trying to hurt us. Their survival, their flourishing actually conflicts with our flourishing. They're not actually trying to hurt us, but but there is a direct conflict of interest in the way, in a different way from smoke, which has no uh, has no interest. So it's it's interesting that actually, yeah, no, the air that other people were breathing was not at all conducive to them flourishing because it had all of these different um, hostile organisms in it. And then also internally, we, we had a bad situation because we didn't, we didn't, weren't able to protect ourselves from those organisms. Whereas now not only have we gotten rid of some of those organisms in our environment, but we also have created technology to neutralize those kinds of things. So you think about different kinds of diseases. Like, yeah, if you have, pol like, even if the polio vaccine had somehow created more polio molecules, so to speak, molecules is the right term, but like polio organisms in the world, you'd still have a better environment from a human perspective because you would have the technology to deal with polio. And it's a similar climate mastery is, has strong analogies to vaccination because the more that you can master climate, the more that anything that happens in an, in your environment that was dangerous several hundred years ago is trivial today. Sometimes I'll use the example of a thunderstorm that would have wrecked a village several hundred years ago can now be the the setting for a romantic date uh, 
with a couple because we've so mastered climate using superior technology. So I just find over and over and over as, as just this fundamental ingredient of thinking that if you recognize nature doesn't give us uh, the environment we need to flourish, it's just, it will help illuminate all of these different issues from, from the need for a really efficient process to produce usable energy, which goes into the whole, all the fallacies behind green energy, which hasn't yet figured out an efficient, a resource efficient process to give us cheap, plentiful, reliable, uh, versatile energy. Like it goes all the way from that to how you think about air quality, to how you think about climate, to how you think about even wildlife, like wildlife, the state of wildlife. This is a whole involved issue, but yeah, that's not naturally ideal. I mean, for one, it's naturally threatening. So we want to think about how can we intelligently transform this? It doesn't mean that we've done all of these ideally, but fundamentally industry in the sense of the mass deployment of machines to transform our environment that is a fundamentally positive environmental force. And, and I almost never meet anyone in industry who has that perspective. But I think if they, if they keep clear on this idea that nature doesn't give us the environment we need to flourish, it will just dramatically change their perception of what they do. And it should change everyone's perception of every policy decision. Because when we think about anything related to environment and we look at, at choices to make, particularly restrictive choices, we always need to look at not only how does this, how does this lessen some man-made threat to our environment, but also how might this lessen some man-made benefit to our environment? And in general, there are many more man-made benefits to our environment than man-made threats. So that's that's my big thought. Uh, either of you have anything to chime in on that one? Well, yes. So just think about how many hours a modern human would survive in a truly natural environment. I think that's a good reference point. So, How many? Not many, I guess. So just just a threat from, uh, you know, other species. Like I live in Europe and Europe would be, uh, you know, in a forest full of, of bears and other big animals that would probably kill me within an hour. You know, in California, there was a, I think it was in California, there was a mountain lion attack. And I've always, I've talked to my girlfriend about how I believe that if I was attacked by a mountain lion, I would have a fighting chance because I would strangle it because I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And uh, in fact, this guy, I believe he was trained in jiu-jitsu, he strangled this mountain lion. So I, I found that pretty vindicating. And it actually occurred to me, jiu-jitsu schools should really teach you much more about how to fight animals. That seems like a really good use case. Like if you're attacked by a pit bull or you're attacked by a mountain lion or attacked by a bear. So I'm wondering, there, there's a new niche for somebody to pioneer and I will I will buy your instructional. All right. Let's go to some more specific topics. Uh, Don, what's the first topic you want to talk about today? So this is a few energy efficiency boondoggles that have been in the news. Uh, and it really comes out of discussions of the Green New Deal, because the Green New Deal talked about making every building in America more energy efficient. And I think often when we hear sort of just grand plans like this, they can sound plausible in part because they're so vague. And so I find it really helpful to say, like, where in history have we seen something like this? Because one of the things we know from history is that plausible sounding plans can fail miserably and can really lead to catastrophe. And so for this energy efficiency, for the government saying, hey, we're going to make things more energy efficient, where has this been tried before? And so two stories came up. Wait, in the hold on. I, want to, I want to just jump in for a second on this one, because I, 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 I totally like this general angle of, yeah, these things can sound good and, and what are they, what are they like in practice? But with efficiency, I just have a pet peeve and I think Stefan has it too, which is that whenever you talk, you have to always think about what are you making more efficient and then recognize if you try to make one thing more efficient, you can do it at the cost of making other things less efficient. So I often think about if, if ultimately I want to be time efficient, I want human beings to accomplish more in less time, since time is the ultimate limiting factor and the ultimate resource that we have as human beings who have these short lifespans from our perspective. And so when somebody says, oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to just as a thinking device, I find it helpful. Like anytime someone says, I'm going to make something more X efficient, like energy efficient, my question becomes, okay, what are you going to make less efficient? So for example, you see energy efficient um, washers or clothing, clothes washers that are just crap 
in terms of actually cleaning things or toilets that are water efficient, that are much easier to get uh, dirty or showers that are quote efficient, that are, um, you know, it's much harder to get clean quickly. And then often the thing that these have in common is that they're not time efficient or they're not cost efficient slash cost effective. So I'm, I'm curious how this plays out uh, in this case. So uh, anyway, that was my little interruption, but go ahead with the, the, the particular examples. Yeah. I mean, it's a worthwhile interruption because it really sets the context for. Um, so the first story comes out of Australia, which is they had this program where they were, the government was going to pay installers of insulation up to $1,600 in, in Australian money, which I think is like 1200 in US dollars at the time, um, that would help have ceiling, increased ceiling insulation for 2.7 million Australian homes. And unsurprisingly, you saw registered insulation businesses grow from 250 to 7,000 because it was basically for them free money. It was, you know, anybody they could get to agree to let them work on their house, the, you know, it didn't cost the consumer anything. And one of the consequences was that the homeowners really had no incentive to make sure the job was done well or not at all. And so one of the things that you ended up with is in a lot of these insulation works, you just had insulation bats thrown around, some shredded paper installed. And unsurprisingly, the cost always ended up being very close to the $1,600 cap. It didn't matter what size the building was or how big the ceiling area was. And I mean, there were some real tragedies associated with this slapdash work. I mean, four installers who weren't that experienced died, 100 houses caught on fire, 5,000 of the installers had to be deregistered, and basically the government just shut the program down early. Then moving to New York, this this actually took place in uh, Congresswoman Elise, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's right near her office, the New York City Housing Authority. They were um, took 23 housing developments and switched them to LED lighting. And the cost for all this was over $33 million or almost $2,000 per apartment. And these are really low-income apartments. And in fact, when people talk to the residents, they said, look, we could install LED lights ourselves, but you know, it would be nice if instead the government spent that money getting rid of rats and mold and lead paint and improving safety. So um, this is just two examples of the way in which if, you know, the government's pursuing this goal, that doesn't necessarily mean the goal is going to play out the way that we're told it will. Yeah, it's interesting that there's always this assumption that people are idiots by default. That is, it's, it's in their interest to be more energy efficient and they're not, and therefore the government has to force them to be more efficient. And you, you see in this case of New York, well, yeah, people have different priorities. They're voicing them. Yeah, they're they're particularly interested in in addressing these kinds of other problems. And then and but and and just if you think about the amount of time that many of those people have, they might just feel like, yeah, we're pressed for time and maybe we haven't thought enough about our lighting. And then but then there there, there are always cases where there are ways to make life better. And usually what the authoritarian does is they just generalize and assume everyone is wrong. And then therefore that they need to impose the right thing on people. And they themselves don't think about all the short-sightedness uh, and incompleteness in their own thinking and then all the details of implementation, which goes to the Australia thing. So then the the authoritarian just dramatically underestimates the intelligence of free people and then overestimates their own wisdom on the thing and then enforces this kind of thing versus the persuader, the businessman will say to somebody, hey, look, you're wasting this amount of money. Uh, and you, you could, if you had LED lighting, it's just as nice or it's even nicer than these others here. Let me show you. And we can save you $200 a year on electricity, maybe or $100 a year on electricity, and it'll be worth it. Here's the financing program, whatever. But one trap that people fall into sometimes if they're in business and they don't persuade the customers, then they feel like, oh, well, if only a wise government were here to help me. If only in my case, they would just do the intelligent thing. But once you, once the government has the authorization to force people to do things, regardless of their perception of the truth or falsehood of what the government says, 
then you're just completely at the mercy of arbitrary power and it's invariably going to be used in a destructive way. Stefan, what was the first story you wanted to talk about? My first story is about uh, Tesla's battery in Australia. So the context is that in back in 2016, uh, there was a fairly large power outage in South Australia, which is a state in, in Australia. Um, and it happened because of a storm that uh, knocked out a couple of power lines. And so previous to that, South Australia has demolished a lot of coal capacity and was increasingly installing wind power capacity. And so it was unable to domestically uh, produce, uh, generate enough power uh, to keep the lights on. And then, you know, load shedding happened and a lot of homes were without power for some substantial time period. And uh, so this, by the way, I just want to interrupt on this. This is definitely not the way that the story has been portrayed because the way the story has been portrayed is that somehow coal is unreliable wind is reliable there's a when there's a problem on the grid it's caused by coal and then elon musk came to the rescue by creating a giant battery that gave the whole system a huge amount of uh backup time so that next time coal failed uh, his battery could you know in an instantaneous and long lasting way give people continuous power and in fact i was i was on a trip to hawaii and I, I was with some nice Australian people on a horseback ride, and they, they told me this story. Yeah, it was definitely like from the media headlines, you would get that impression. So, so what happened then, uh, Tesla came to the rescue, installed a big battery, a uh, lithium-ion battery in South Australia, and pro therefore provided backup uh, capacity for the wind power. Um, and so just last, late last January, there was a big heat wave in Australia. Australia, of course, is in the Southern Hemisphere and now experiences summer season. And uh, the problem then was that uh, there were still some power outages. I think a couple of thousand households were without power. And uh, this heat wave generated a lot of demand in terms of uh, air conditioning. Uh, <laughs> And so then the question was, what happened? And there was some calculation by a member of parliament, Craig Kelly, who calculated that uh, the Tesla battery at the time of, of peak demand on January 24th provided 30 megawatts of uh, power. And that was less than 1% of South Australia's total demand. Uh, and uh, so just three hours later, it fizzled out. And so this, I didn't notice that at the time this battery was hyped, but it's only a 100 megawatt, 129 megawatt hours capacity battery attached to one wind farm in South Australia. And so it's obviously totally not sufficient to provide any kind of backup. So and as Craig Kelly calculated, something like 97% of power supply came from fossil fuels during the crucial hours of this sort of emergency weather event. And uh, so, you know, just as wind had a trough in generation in the afternoon, uh, the battery wasn't even fully charged, apparently. So it only provided uh, 100 megawatt hours of the 129 of nominal capacity. And... Uh, so wind power failed and the battery backup also failed. And so this was totally not predictable from the media headlines. But, you know, when looking at the numbers, of course, a Tesla battery is so small, it's it's just a, a drop in the bucket. Yeah, that, that's what I find really irresponsible. I, we were, I think you read this too. I read a report from the Global Warming Policy Foundation. I forget what it was called, but they have really interesting reports, by the way, often. And they, they had one that was on storage and the different approaches to storage. One of the big points it made is that just battery storage is so inferior to um, what we could call hydro storage, where you basically you use excess energy at a given time to pump water uh, vertically. And then later you basically use it as a hydroelectric dam to generate energy later. Like that's just that, that you can't do everywhere. There are a bunch of issues with it, but it's just so much more efficient. 
than having batteries, which have all these issues. And I and I believe it made the point. I don't remember the the exact percentage, but it was it was some very tiny percentage of the, this battery, just based on its size, is just totally inadequate. I think it was maybe it had. They said at full charge, it would give four minutes of backup capacity for a given section of the grid. I'm not sure how much of South Australia that was, but you just think about four minutes and how many of the, it would be a good research project. How many of the news stories, we should actually do this. How many of the news stories about this world's biggest battery mentioned how much actual power it could provide in, in meaningful terms? It's not meaningful to just say 129 megawatt hours. That's huge. You would want to know, okay, how big is that uh, actually? And then, and if you just think about it logically, okay, a Tesla, what um, Tesla with what? What is it? Ludicrous mode. There's, I think, ludicrous mode is the is the highest one. Or if you get a Tesla 100D, okay, that's 100 kilowatt hours. So that is a, and that's one thousandth of 100 megawatt hours. And this is 129 megawatt hours. So basically, you're dealing with 1,290 Tesla worth of battery storage and people might have some common sense intuition. Oh yeah, that's not going to be that much. And those Teslas are not going to be able to power like a whole uh, grid. And if that's super, super expensive, then it's not a good solution to try to have these unreliable power sources and then somehow have batteries make it up because it's just, that's, that's, uh, that's just not anywhere near enough power. And part of the story was that, you know, Elon Musk came in and had this wager, like if they wouldn't erect this battery storage in a short period of time, South Australia would get it for free. So it definitely was set up as, okay, we have this this problem with intermittency, but that's not really a problem because Tesla will just come in and build the world's biggest battery. It's just, you know, if you want it, you can get it. Yeah, he should... Uh... If I ever get the chance to debate him, this would be an interesting subject to get into the details of. He's quite selective in terms of what he wants to get into the details of. Also, I think I saw in your notes that d during the heat wave, didn't prices go up by some huge multiple? Yeah, so the the uh, the wholesale prices jumped to over fourteen thousand Australian dollars uh, per megawatt hour, which is like two orders of magnitude. Uh, larger than than under normal operations which is you know normal if you have an emergency then you know the uh, last kilowatt hour the marginal kilowatt hour will will spike in prices so there were some calcul calculations on the web uh, something like 500 australian dollars per family i don't know how accurate this is i didn't make the calculation but that's the order of magnitude what we are looking at in the case of this emergency yeah something like 300 times more than it it conventionally costs, and when when you deal with these supply constraints, and when you have these grids that are just that that have all of these risks built in because they they don't have sufficient reliable power, and they have all this unreliable power. When people are making up these cost estimates, they're not talking about these crunches because the, these crunches. I mean, think about it. If it makes the price three hundred times higher, how long does it take to make up for that? And then, let alone as we've discussed on other recent shows, if you have a blackout. I mean, what's the cost of that? So the one thing I've started to appreciate the last several shows even more is just how how important it is that energy be affordable and how just the standard cited operating cost of energy can be very distorted, both because it, it, it can ignore all these hidden costs, particularly with the unreliable forms that have all these dependencies that people aren't accounting for, but then also with any kind of lack of reliability, you then have the risk of these surges in price and then the blackouts, which are just, which just make everything so expensive and that can negate years of otherwise low prices. Okay, Don, next story from you. Yes, this is a, another uh, couple different stories, one from LA and one from New York. And uh, I'll set up this way, which is like, imagine that you had a loved one who was being kept alive by a drug and the hospital said, we're going to discontinue the drug and hopefully by the time we run out of the supply, we, this new experimental drug that really doesn't work and costs 10 times as much will be reliable and affordable. And like you'd think, well, if you're going to discontinue something that works, you'd better have a proven replacement ready to go. But what we're seeing in uh, across the country, but in particular here in LA and New York, is shutting down and blocking fossil fuel projects 
and then just having a fantasy or a hope that they're going to be able to be replaced ultimately by solar and wind before residents become starved for energy. So in LA, they're abandoning plans to rebuild uh, three natural gas power plants. And this is part of the whole goal of becoming 100% renewable or the, the actual law that's been implemented in the state. And the mayor, even the way he put it is now is the time to start the beginning of the end of natural gas. And the idea is that they're just going to ultimately be able to rely on solar, wind, and batteries, even though LA's own utility officials have said just in the last year that um, batteries charged with solar and wind aren't yet able to provide cheap, uh, reliable energy enough to replace gas plants and and that we would actually risk power outages for 4 million people in the area. And the mayor's answer was, well, we just need to shift our thinking. Like, I mean, literally that's the answer is that uh, we won't have trouble keeping the lights on if it's just batteries and clean energy technologies. We, you just need to think about it differently. And in New York, there's been much the same. So New York naturally just has an incredible amount of natural gas, but they can't actually get it for themselves because they have a ban on fracking. And so they rely on imports of natural gas for their energy but they've also blocked and delayed all these new pipeline projects. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about how there was even one town in New York where they're basically putting a moratorium on hooking people up to natural gas because they say, look, we don't even have enough. So you have a you have a state that has a natural gas shortage. And over the next couple of years, they're going to be shutting down two nuclear reactors that together supply a quarter of New York City's electricity. And the idea is, well, we'll replace them with natural gas, but they have no plans to build more pipelines. And so um, the New York Public Service Commission chairman, John B. Rhodes, his his answer to this is, um, well, we're looking at clean alternatives. And so I think in both these cases, you see that like the 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 people who are sort of championing the green new deal and all these 100% renewable plans the only actual plan the only thing that they really have a checklist that they can implement is outlawing practical energy and then the, all they have is, is a solution is a fantasy and a hope that renewables will somehow bail them out of energy starvation and i mean i just this is so reckless and irresponsible and yet the fact that people aren't concerned about this but they're concerned about you know, a temperature rise in a century, I find really astonishing. One one thing that is so important to grasp and is hard to grasp is just how large numbers of people can be very wrong, and including how societies can make enormous mistakes that contradict the knowledge of experts, or at least knowledge you would ex- sometimes the knowledge of experts, or sometimes knowledge you would expect experts to have. But it's it's worth thinking about when are there these mass delusions that nobody is talking about, and that that seem to just take everyone by surprise. You can think about the mortgage crisis slash financial crisis two thousand seven two thousand eight, and how little anticipated that was. At least how many people thought. Yeah, there are no, and the causes of those are very involved. But just if you take like mortgage lending practices that didn't make sense, there are certain people like Warren Buffett, I've been reading a lot recently, who are just saying, okay, these practices don't make sense. You can't just assume housing prices will always go up um, in the way that you are and the actual economics are off. But when there are enough, if there are, here's what works. Here's the way these things work. If there are enough quote unquote expert people who either say something is good or who don't protest it it's there's an understandable calm that we have about it we think okay well there's there can't be that much of a downside and, and i want to just try to institute in people's mind that no you cannot feel comfortable just because there aren't experts that are protesting you might think oh yeah well the, the people won't let these mortgage lending practices out of control or they won't go out of control because just there are too many people whose job it is or I just was thinking of a different example that I forgot of. But another example that's come up recently is the example in the last several years of the company Theranos, which a bunch of my friends have been talking about. There's a new podcast about it called The Dropout, 
which seems to be pretty good journalistically. And I, I know someone who's an insider there and at least seems to have a decent opinion of the accuracy of that so far. And what you see with Theranos is it's a situation where there was a technology. This is my, my current understanding, so I haven't looked into this in depth, but the, the essential idea that a drop of blood, like by pricking your finger and getting a drop of blood, you could replace a huge amount of the functionality where people normally draw vials of blood. And there were very, very elite people like George Schultz, who's actually a Republican climate catastrophist, and we're still trusting on that. But there are all sorts of prestigious people who were involved with this, including professors, and who were, and if you looked at the number of people promoting it, the media promoting it, the people who have responsibility to fact check, you think, okay, there's no way that this technology just doesn't work. And yet that's what seems to be the case. The technology just didn't work. There was something fundamentally wrong about it, and people just didn't get it. And the, the, the mainstream knowledge system, including many thought leaders, just failed. So what can we do as consumers? Well, one thing is if something doesn't make sense, then really challenge it and see if somebody has an argument. So if somebody says, hey, we're going to use unreliable fuel sources and we're going to power the whole grid on that, ask them, how is this possibly going to work? I don't understand how it's going to work. I understand how it works if you have 100% life support from these reliable sources. But if you ban those, how is that going to work? Like, okay, you have storage, but look at how much the storage costs. The storage costs like hundreds and hundreds, thousands of times more than you would need it to for it uh, to be okay. And even then, you need to totally build way, way more of these unreliable uh, power things. And even how are you going to do that? And how are you going to overcome all the obstacles there? If you have one of your weapons is just having common sense and ignorance and, and, the, and the ability to ask, quote unquote, ignorant, maybe a better term is innocent questions. And just do not assume that everyone knows what they're doing because often people in the know one of their rationalizations is like, well, nobody will really take this seriously. So they feel like, yeah, I'm a power operator. Yeah, I know that this is a bad idea, but somebody else will step in. And then what happens is nobody else steps in. And then the stakes become higher and higher. And then you feel more and more isolated saying something. And then you get these kinds of um, of disasters. So as as just intelligent, ambitious citizens... We cannot have confidence that just everyone knows what they're doing, particularly if they're doing something that defies our common sense. It might make sense, but it might not. Okay, Stefan, what's your second story today? Uh, so my second story is the California uh, government scaling back on the so-called bullet train project between San Francisco and Los Angeles. Uh, California Governor uh, Newsom has announced that he wants to cut the taxpayer liability of what's now estimated to be a $77 billion and counting project. Uh, and so this, this led to me going back in time when I was analyzing a couple of years ago, uh, transport, and uh, I have a couple of thoughts on this. So high-speed passenger trains are problematic because, in my view, they sort of give us the worst of all worlds, which then ultimately results in a high cost. So you have to build them in pretty much straight lines through the landscape. But particularly in California, there's a lot of valuable property in the way. So this raises cost for laying the tracks, and they have to be special tracks. You can't just use the, the old crummy Amtrak uh, tracks or Maybe I shouldn't say crummy. Probably most of them are pretty in pretty good shape for uh, for transport of goods and and passengers, but not at high speed. And so you you have to, and they are pretty inconvenient because you have to have these uh, train stations that are capable of taking in the high speed bullet trains. And uh, you can't make too many stops on the on the way because then you have to slow down and accelerate and, and stop and accelerate again and so on, which would, you know, uh, make this train ride not that speedy. And overall, they are still less speedy than an airliner. And it turns out that the overall cost per mile traveled are also higher than with an airliner. So you get a very costly transport system that's slower than an airliner as inflexible as an airliner, it's not like a, a cab or, or some other 
transport system for passengers that can bring you from, you know, door to door. You still have to have a train station. And so overall, this doesn't seem like a good solution if you want to, you know, replace airliners as, for example, the Green New Deal. How suggests. consistent, what do you know about just the, the range of prices on these things? Like where, where, where are they most cost effective? And then what's the cost per mile on those? So I have some overall statistic from a Cato scholar named Randall O'Toole, which I found uh, very valuable. And he had something like uh, multiple times, like double or more uh, cost per, mess, uh, per passenger mile traveled between an airliner and a, and a rail line. So a, a passenger airliner has maybe 15 cents per, per mile travel per passenger. And a high-speed train usually has like 35 or more cents per mile in passenger. And what is it for an automobile? Uh, I don't have that number, but he, so the automobile is not actually comparable because the the, the automobile can g get you from point A to point B, but the bullet train and the airliner can only get you from you know train station or airport to train station or airport. So it's like even even if cars were more costly, and I don't think they are, but if even if they were more costly, you are paying more to get get it. To be more flexible. And I mean, my my value. suspicion is that maybe the most efficient thing in terms of cost is buses, just because that. I mean, and I think that's part of why they're able to charge really low fares. Now, they're not a perfect solution in many many ways, but it's interesting that there's just this this yeah, and it has a certain appeal. You just think, oh yeah, I sit in this train and then I move and it's fast and it's futuristic. And look, if if that can be done in a cost effective way, I would. Uh, I would love to have it, but these things are just often it's just people are just conceiving of, oh yeah, this seems like it would be good and it seems like it wouldn't use oil. Therefore, let's use it. Let's build it. Well, buses are definitely better than, than monorail in, in cities and definitely better on the mid-range if, if you can get enough passengers per, per bus, of course, that's also a problem because many of these, these projects are government projects and government planning. And then you have, you know, very expensive monorail lines or, or bus lines that have very few passengers most of the day. And just, just one thing to keep coming back to is we're, we're being told that mandating this kind of thing in 10 years is this kind of can't miss opportunity. And yet we see that the reality of these things, these these authoritarian proposals, and and in particular the technologies that are the basis of them, or the, the technologies that the proposals would implement, are hugely problematic. At least very very difficult to get right. And then, at least in their in the proposal statement, they talked about well doing this in a way that air travel is is unnecessary, which gets to Don's point that I like a lot about the 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 life saving drug, like saying. Yeah, well, we're gonna. For we know this date. You're not going to be allowed to use this drug, and then. But don't worry, we're going to have a better replacement. You know, that's not something you're allowed to do in a free society. Okay, Don, what is your? I guess this will be your last story today because we only have about uh, ten more minutes. So, what do you have for us? Um, well, this is more of a recommended reading. So, uh, Michael Schellenberger has, who's written a lot of good articles for Forbes, has a really, I think, uh, solid piece on why the uh, green movement hates nuclear and supports renewables. And so we've talked a lot about on the show about this kind of revealing fact that many of the people who say we face a climate catastrophe that requires just this radical transformation of life, including radical restrictions on fossil fuels, also want to ban the best non-CO2 alternative to fossil fuels, which is nuclear. And so in essence, what Schellenberger points out, he, he says, yeah, a lot of people worry about nuclear safety, but if we're talking about the public intellectuals like Al Gore and Bill McKibben, they know the record, which is that nuclear is actually the safest form of energy. And then when you know, uh, uh, most of us 
can fall victim to this appeal to nature fallacy, as he calls it, where we assume that solar and wind must be cleaner and safer and better than other forms of energy because it's more natural. And he says the Greens leaders know this isn't true as well. I mean, they know about the mining and waste that these projects involve and the impact these projects involve because they're also involved in all of these different not in my backyard litigation things where people want to keep out windmills and uh, solar panels from their neighborhoods. And so he says, well, what's going on in that they're so opposed to nuclear and so for solar and wind? And his analysis points out that historically environmentalism grew out of the socialist movement. Whereas, you know, socialists had been saying capitalism was going to get buried by the economic powerhouse uh socialism is going to bury capitalism because it's an economic powerhouse and that didn't quite work out. So they said, well, instead the problem with capitalism is that it harms the environment. And then nuclear was this big counter argument for them because it was, well, we don't have to like wipe out capitalism. We'll just build a bunch of nuclear plants instead of coal plants. And that's going to, you know, address all the problems that you say we have. And so in order to hold on to socialism, they had to attack nuclear power and say, no, we need to remake capitalism, including the energy that powers it. And and so uh, that is really the kind of reason that they're against nuclear and the reason that they're so attached to these forms of energy um, that in actuality have a huge impact. And as we've talked about, have real barriers to feasibility and uh I, I think there's a lot that's valuable in this whole analysis that he has. Um, but I do think there's a way in which he doesn't go quite deep enough. So I'm curious if you've read it, Alex, or just based on my summary, if you you or Stefan have any thoughts on sort of um, this just general question about the opposition to nuclear. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing because there is this – Ayn Rand certainly makes this point about how the socialists – were looking for a new reason to oppose capitalism. And then they came up with environment. One, one thing that's going on is there is a deep, this is another Ayn Rand point. There's a, just a, in, in, in all forms of collectivism, there is a deep opposition to the mind, to human thought. It's the whole big issue to get into it, but it's, it's not like there is this pretense that socialism was scientific and but it, but the core thing that it does is it enslaves everyone i mean and by preventing you from owning property that that means that it prevents you from using your mind to dictate the actions in your life that's really what it functionally does so it's it's really enslaving the minds of people it's not something that values the individual human mind and then people who don't value the individual human mind don't like there, there's a big overlap between that and having a deep hostility to technology, particularly new technology. So I, I don't think it's a surprise that there's just this this deep opposition to the these fundamental breakthroughs like splitting the atom. People are fundamentally um, uncomfortable with that. That's one element. So there is there is a deep technophobia on the left. There's a certain kind of technophobia on the right too, but there is a deep uh, technophobia on the left, a, a deep disregard for the individual human mind. And then also there's a deep disregard for, for human flourishing. These socialist and collectivist ideas, they claimed to care about it, human flourishing, but they always claim to care about it on this very abstract collective level. And in practice, because there are only individuals, they end up enslaving the individuals and ruining human flourishing. And and so there's something about them that believe in sacrificing individual human beings to some sort of um, higher cause. And thus, that's another reason why environmentalism is, is, um, is congenial to that kind of mentality. Instead of sacrificing the individual to this amorphous collective, you sacrifice the individual to nature. Whereas if you, if you really valued the individual in the first place, then you would have been very suspicious of collectivism and you would certainly be suspicious of this thing that says, oh, well, we should sacrifice for the ecosystem and it'll somehow all work out and mother nature will, will take care of us. Um, so those are, those are two things where I, I think the, the left has a, a history of being anti the individual's mind and anti the individual's life. And thus, and, and, and thus, I mean, in general, hostile to 
technologies and freedoms that advance those things. And part of the thing with solar and wind is that a crucial part of them is that they do not work. So there's, it's a different thing to look at what would happen if solar and wind actually worked. And we can already see on a smaller scale with the green movement, in practice, there's all kinds of local opposition to solar and wind because they'll say, oh, it has too much impact on environment. So when one final point about the green movement is just when you're dealing with when you're dealing with a movement that opposes something and then claims to support something, if the thing it's, it claims to support doesn't work and, and therefore doesn't actually need to support it, it doesn't mean that it really supports it. So I, I don't think of the green movement as actually being enthusiastic about solar and wind. I believe them as actually being hostile to industrial capitalism. And if solar became a key and vital component of industrial capitalism, they would find many reasons to oppose it, including all of its environmental impacts that they downplay now. Uh, Stefan, any quick thoughts on that before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, so I find this highly plausible on the intellectual thought leader level. I think uh, many of the particularly young people that are being motivated by, by the green movement uh, are just duped into believing things that aren't so. So for, in nuclear is the best example. The nuclear waste crisis, which is a completely manufactured crisis, we have a much better idea how to deal with nuclear waste, which still contains a lot of useful energy, in the near future than we have with, uh, you know, the waste issue from uh, solar panels, for example. Interesting. All right. Well, we're go I know you guys both have more stories, but those will have to wait till another week. It's good that there's so much stuff to talk about, although in a sense, bad that there's so much stuff to talk about because we are not yet at the panacea of energy, freedom, and mass human flourishing. But hopefully this show and our other efforts will move us toward that uh toward that goal. Okay. Let's see a couple of housekeeping things. If you want to have, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can reach me at alex at industrialprogress.net, Don at Don at industrialprogress.net and Stefan at S-T-E-F-F-E-N at industrialprogress.net. If you want to support the show, one of the best ways is by either having one of us as a speaker at your events or recommending us to an event. If you want more information about that, you can email Don at Don at industrialprogress.net or go, go to industrialprogress.com slash speaking. Uh, thanks, Don and Stefan, for joining me today. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. And next week, we'll be back with more great topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.